Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 148. So glad you could join me. It was tough having the last week off. We had a fire, if you didn't know, um, right like at the end of my street, a forest fire. I can still see the Vostok uh, painted on the canyon rim right out the window here. Um, and uh, the fire burned through all of our phone and internet lines so all the poles had to be replaced we had no internet or power for several different days during the week and we just couldn't do a show but it's so great to be back and um, trying to figure out how to keep this whole thing running um, before we get I should say it rattles a publication of the rattle foundation a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button, share, make sure you're subscribed. Whatever you can do to help spread poetry around the internet is what we ask of you. Uh, so please do that right now if you would. Um, now we're going to start, as always, with our uh, Poets Respond Poets. And uh, yesterday was Father's Day, um, as you probably noticed, in the United States, and uh, Morgan Eklund has this poem about Frank Lloyd Wright. And uh, Morgan is joining us right now. Hello, Morgan. How are you doing? Hello, I'm good. I'm in Parsonsfield, Maine right now on vacation. So enjoying lots of great ponds and forests and nature. So it's been great. Excellent. Yeah, and that's a place where they don't have any forest fires, which is nice too. Yes, um, a little a little ahead of you there. So you mentioned uh, in your note that you have a, um, a whole series of poems about fathers. Um, so what is it about fathers that, that drew you to that topic? Why are you writing a book about, about fathers? You know, I think trying to understand my own father, and um, he's a poet as well. So I think trying to understand another creative person and that dynamic is interesting. And so my my way into that has been through other fathers and through other father-daughter relationships. Everything from uh, King Lear to Atticus Finch to Homer Simpson um, has kind of been my focus and then yeah. I end up writing about a lot about myself too, then and kind of leaving fathers as well. So, so we always talk about on here as a poetry as a kind of a sense making tool. It's a way to like figure out things about the world. So, is there anything you've like figured out through through writing so many poems about fathers? It's you know the, the, the poem itself, the one about Frank Lloyd Wright, made me think a lot about how just the, the difference between I always think of things through like an evolutionary biology lens, and the sort of different drives men have as opposed to women and how that kind of shapes interpersonal relationships and stuff. And, and so being driven, um, you know, like you, you would have to be to be someone like Frank Lloyd Wright, but then all the things you let go and, and don't do a good job of because of that, um, you know, that, that, that thing you have to negotiate um, mm -hmm. is really interesting. So I don't know. So what was it that you learned about, about fathers through, through this process? Hmm. I think yeah, I think it's it's the letting go that you have to do personally to to balance the the genius, for lack of better words, the artist, the creative with with the father and and knowing not knowing you can't get everything you need from your father, or from your mother or any any parental parental figure. Um, yeah. um, well, let's hear this poem now. This is Frank Lloyd Wright, whose birthday he was. It was his 155th birthday on uh, June 8th last week um and this poem looks back it's a pantoum i'm looking back at, at frank lloyd wright um his his terribleness as a father and um and and what that means to to enjoy his his um you know his architecture like so many of us do um let's hear this poem frank lloyd wright pantoum frank lloyd wright pantoum 
Frank Lloyd Wright was a terrible father, but I like his houses and windows. His horizontal lines, I want to be those dark beams. I like his late prairie style, the Emil Bach house up the street from where I live. I like his houses and windows, but he abandoned his family in 1909 and left for Europe with his mistress. I like his late prairie style, the Emil Bach house up the street from where I live. My father has never seen this house up the street from where I live. He abandoned his family in 1909 and left for Europe with his mistress. How do I still love the houses and windows the terrible father built? My father has never seen this house up the street from where I live, even after the caretaker plants yellow mums in the fall. How do I still love the houses and windows the terrible father built? His horizontal lines, I want to be those dark beams. Even after the caretaker plants yellow mums in the fall, Frank Lloyd Wright was a terrible father. Yeah, just excellent pantoum. And I kept coming back to that, um, that I want to be those dark beams line. That was just kind of haunting to me. Um, what was it that made you uh, want to write that poem in the pantoum form? I think definitely the repetition of of the form itself is, is part of the process of trying to understand fathers. You know, let me repeat this line and and see if it goes better here or here. And, and then how the meaning can change. Um, yeah, it, the poem started out as as just a prose poem, trying to get out this narrative, the story of him. Um, but then, um, yeah, came out in another form, which I was happy about. Well, very cool. Morgan Eklund, so glad you could join us and share yeah. that poem uh, and, and, and explain a little bit about how it came to be. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I have to all run now uh, and catch the rest of this recording uh, later. So yeah. happy to hear your other guests. Yeah, I hope you do. Take care. Okay, thanks, guys. Okay, that was Morgan Eklund um, with uh, Frank Lloyd Wright Pantoum. And now the other piece of news that's going on right now is um, um, the January 6th hearings. And we had two poems last week that we didn't get to about those. And, um, um, and Jeff Harden, one of the authors, um, one of the most creative poems that I've gotten in a while. There's so many great lines in this at least something poem. And Jeff Harden is here to talk about it. Uh, hey, Jeff. How you doing? Hey. Hey, Tim. Um, yeah, so so this this at least something, um, you know, and another thing is I usually don't I don't pick poems based on my own feelings, but I really resonated with the way that this poem moved. I'm just so sick of politics. And maybe it's just reading poems about politics every week. But the sort of the fed upness of um, this poem is one of the things in addition to the so many great lines. Um, so, so what was it that, that made this poem come to be? Well, I think. I could say I heard a geese. I heard a goose outside of my house, um, and I had tucked that away. Just that that sound. I was thinking, well, is it by itself? Is it following? Is it not catching up to something else? Uh, and of course, just listening to all the the political channels, like we have been doing now for it seems, especially the last ten to fifteen years, and the advent, I think, of Facebook and uh, Twitter has just kind of made everything politicized. And I'm like you, um, I've gotten to the point where I used to feel like I needed to be responsible and listen. And that went so far. <laughs> and I, I went so far into that, trying to be a responsible set. But I also teach American literature. And so I, I really love uh, Thoreau when he, he makes this comment that politics is but a narrow field. And, and a little bit later, he says, he, he compares it to the cigar smoke of a man. 
And I've always thought that was such a wonderful image because it's a foul odor <laughs> or, or if you just stand still, it'll drift away. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of ways that that, that image might um, kind of bear out some kind of meaning. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think for myself too, um, just listening to politics can get really, really old. And I think the second, second line in it or, or so where I, I made some comment about uh, politics is um, uh, performing surgery on a thing already dead. Uh, that's what it feels like these mm -hmm. days. It really does. Yeah. 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 It, it brought me back to, to um, um, Sheldon Wolin's book, Democracy Inc., uh, or he says, um, uh, you know, the new inverted totalitarianism is, is all politics all the time devoid of politics and or devoid of the political, I should say. And, and that's kind of what it is. Like nothing is about actual solutions or, um, you know, it, it's just this 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 fighting between two groups. Um, and I don't know, it's very frustrating. And you put it great in so many lines in this poem. Um, I don't know. Is this the style you usually write in um, where there's so many twists and turns and metaphors? Um, at times, I would say yes. <laughs> I tend to write um, in a lot. I mean, from one day to the next, I may I may write a sonnet, and then I may write a poem like this, and then I write long lines and narrow lines. I tend to be all over the map, um, just trying to find some new way to to hear language. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, uh, you know, as you were talking, it reminded me of Adam Zagievsky uh, talks about. I forget where I read this, but he says something along the lines that, you know, politics is important uh, and you can't escape it and you shouldn't really. But um, some, sometimes these movements are really good at narrowing our lives down so that we only see through the political lens mm -hmm. or reduce. I think he says something like reduce our lives to the political, um, some kind of political dimension. And to go back to Thoreau for a minute, he says he, he talks about this thin stratum in which the news transpires. Well, life is a lot bigger than that. In fact, that's his point. Mm -hmm. Life is so much vaster than the thin stratum of things that we think of as the news. The real news is vast. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so why, why, why reduce it down to just a this thin stratum or politics, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Even the phrase, the news, as if it's like one group of yeah. things that we're supposed to be talking about, um, kind of does it just linguistically. Uh, well, let's hear this poem, At Least Something, uh, with Jeff Harden. Okay. At Least Something. It has an epigraph by Henry David Thoreau, politics is but a narrow field. Politics sounds like geese honking inside an oil drum, calling it a sanctuary. Politics is performing surgery on a thing already dead. A shaker chair is art, and art is not business, and business is not theology, although some people act like it is. They split words' interiors to blow up other people's worlds. Politics is 1862, 1945, 1968, this very moment, which rebukes every other moment. A doxology plays, heard by fewer and fewer. I would prefer things work, but they don't. They burst, collapse, disintegrate. Politics obliterates hymns. Politics is a window onto a wall supporting a dome 
keeping the heavens out. Rhetoric is not rumination, but ruination. It runs roughshod and ruins a nation. The connotative overtakes the denotative. The figurative stands no chance against the literal. Rhetoric isn't an orchard where stillness reigns. How lovely a word like reigns. It sounds inside the inner ear and seems to solemn ever outward, touching blossoms, bees visit, hillsides streaming away, and hollowed out beech trunks found by jays and vireos. How lovely, too, the idea of hollowness, how absence is all it is, but at least that's something, as it was in the beginning when a word spoke and everything began to happen. Yeah, just so many great epigrammatic lines in that poem, at least something by Jeff Harden. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us, and, and it's good to meet you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Tim. Yep, take care. Okay, we're going to go to a quick break now and go to today's main guest. That is Mark Gibbons, of course. We'll be right back in just a moment. We're back. Uh, thanks for your patience. As I mentioned, Mark Gibbons uh, is today's guest, Montana Poet Laureate. Mark Gibbons is the author of nine books and two chapbooks of poetry, most recently In the Weeds, which I have right here. Um, he's edited two poetry collections for the Drumlemon Institute and is the editor of Montana, the Montana Poet Series for Foothills Publishing. For four decades, Gibbons has taught poetry to a variety of citizens in Montana, from one-room schools to colleges to the Montana State Hospital in Warm Springs. He lives in Missoula with his wife and continues to teach with the Missoula Writing Collaborative. And here he is, Mark Gibbons. Hey, Mark, it's great to meet you. Nice to meet you, Tim. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, I, I just I love reading this book. Um, and one of the things just to start out because since you're the poet lord of Montana, I, and it relates to what we were talking about just now with Jeff, I remember um, the only time I've been in Montana was driving through, but I fell in love. It's just so beautiful driving through the just the I ninety up that Clark's Fork, and I remember listening to public radio. Um, and they were having, I can't remember what they were debating, something about like maybe land laws or something. Um, but there were two sides of a political debate, having conversations, just calling in and so civil to each other. And I was really struck. And I don't know if that's how it is in Montana, but that's my lasting impression. I mean, speaking of the political, was that it's a place where the two sides can actually get along. Is that, is that still the case in your opinion? Well, I think, I think, yeah, historically, I think that's true. I mean, you know, we've had a uh, you, you know, I mean, always there was a there was a balance kind of of Republican and Democratic office holders in this state because people seem to understand that idea of checks and balances uh, in this state. So, I mean, you had people that would cross over and vote different different parties for different candidates. They voted people. I mean, really, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that, you know, for the I'm going back in time now and, and back then. Uh, you know, uh, there was probably 600,000 people in in this massively large state. And, and I have a friend that says he runs into somebody on an airplane and they'll start a conversation. They'll say, oh, you're from Montana. I mean, one degree of separation. Yeah. From Montana. <laughs> you will know somebody that that person knows. You know, I mean, so it has a lot to do with that, I think, just kind of one big small town, you might say. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was my impression. Just you know, spending one day. I think I spent the night in Missoula, and then kept driving. And uh, and I, ever since, I've sort of fantasized about moving there. So um, it's it's cool to meet the poet laureate of Montana. Um, to start out, why don't you read a poem? I don't know what, what you want to start with, but it's always good to kick it off with a poem. All right. Uh, well, you know, I thought I'd just uh, kick it off with this little uh, little reference back to old Descartes. This is on uh, page 169. Okay. It's called, I think, Therefore, I have made myself a poet by insisting I am a poet after years of insisting I wasn't a poet, even though I did know it back then when I kept insisting I was just a guy who wrote the shit that came to mind. Those thoughts and observations we all have, but most don't take the time to write down. So I became a poet by virtue of putting words on paper and publishing them in books, reading them aloud, and acknowledging the proclamations of others calling me a poet. I guess a poet is someone who is determined to be a poet, wants it enough to read and study those deemed or claiming to be poets, a mysteriously undefinable club begging absolute freedom for contradiction that uneasy comfort of non-conformity, constantly seeking the safety of distance to confess ignorance, fear, ecstasy, and suspicion. Poetry, the delirious diary of existence, those fragmented lingo bits gathered and strewn, a display intoning straight-on honest spews, or veering into through the elliptical, surreal, bejibbity voodoo of language voiced and heard, our scribbled account of dreams whispered. I have made myself a poet because I claim I am. Therefore, just ask me, and I will tell you, I am a poet, I think. <laughs> and that was a, um, I think, yeah, a poem from In the Weeds. Uh, Mark Gibbons' newest book. And um, so so going with that, Mark, I mean, I always like to hear how people became poets. It's always an interesting topic of discussion. Um, and, and since, you know, calling yourself a poet is, is kind of all you really need. Um, but but, <laughs> but when, did you, uh, when did you first sort of think of calling yourself or think of wanting to or, or think of pursuing it? How did, how did poetry come to be in your life? Well, poetry came to be in my life through... Uh through someone visiting my high school when I was uh, 16 years old. And and so it was, I think, the first time that Montana had had a poet in the schools program. And the poet uh, that wound up coming to work with anybody who wanted to get out of the regular classroom and try something like writing poetry, which who didn't want to do that? uh, His name was James Welch. I don't know if you know who James Welch is. He's a... He's a Montana writer of some acclaim. He's written several uh, novels, and uh, his first collection, his first book, was a collection of poetry, which had not been published yet. He was just a young guy traveling around doing poetry in the schools, but uh, he was working on that first collection of poems. It's a terrific collection of poems titled Writing the Earth Boy 40, and so he shared these poems with us, and and uh, and it was the first time that I'd had that kind of a model 
of someone who wrote out of their own experience. He grew up on what we call the High Line in Montana, which is kind of Highway 2. It goes way across just south of the Canadian border. And uh, between Browning, Montana, on the Blackfeet Reservation, and Harlem, Montana, just outside of the uh, Fort Belknap Reservation, he, he had family in both locations, and he moved back and forth between that. He wrote about all that experience on the ground, in the people, and in the, in the sort of culture, uh, the culture of the Blackfeet and the Grovan, and, uh, and in the, the white cultures that he came from, too. So, I mean, I think uh, just that telling us that that's what poetry really was about, that it was about what you kind of knew and who, and who you were and, and what you wanted to talk about, the words you had inside of you. Before that, poetry was all the classics, right? And, mm -hmm. and the stuff you had in school, which this is 1970, so it's a while back, but things have obviously changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, well, it's interesting that you talk, you know, you start off that by talking about a poet, because one of the interesting things about you, and, and it seems like the sense of the the poetry community is very strong, at least within you, um, through a lot of the poems that are about different poets and things going on. And they do this series now as Poet Laureate, uh, which you've decided to do, where you're interviewing a whole bunch of poets. And I think on the, um, it's like the Montana or Missoula Public Access Channel's website, is that where you can find the videos? There, there are dozens of videos where you're interviewing and doing exactly this Rattlecast type thing, but with all Montana poets. And there's this real sense, I watched a few of those, there's a real sense of connection. Like there's this, like you mentioned how small the population is in the state and everybody knows everybody. It really feels that way, that there's a community of poets that are very close. Is that the case? Yeah, I think that's the case. And, and uh, I, I think we are pretty well aware of who we are in this state. I mean, there's obviously newer poets, younger poets coming into the picture that we're just, you know, I'm getting familiar with in that whole idea of trying to record people in a in an archive of poets in Montana. I thought I, I wanted to start with the older poets mm -hmm. uh, simply because, well, I mean, I've I buried two this year. Mm -hmm. uh, that I didn't get to, and and that was kind of motivation for it. But didn't I wasn't able to get those people uh, on tape for other people to experience them and their work. So uh, that was the motivation for doing it. And I'll do it. I've got another a little over a year left at this, so I'll just keep recording these. Right now, I think there's about twenty almost, and mm -hmm. and uh, we'll probably get you know about twice that many before we're done, at least. Yeah, it's such a great resource. I mean, that's the one of the things that we do with the show is just to have this archive of poets that people can meet and, and see what a poet was actually like beyond the words, which is always really fascinating. Um, and, and reading your book, too, um, I get the sense of, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, the words in your mind being what comes out of a poem. And it feels like a real intimate connection with your thought process uh, reading through these poems. Um, what, what's your process like? How do you um, you know, do you write every day? It feels very sort of meditative and, um, and you'll go anywhere with the poems as they come out. Um, is that the case? And, and how, how do the poems come to be? How do you, how do you confront a poem and the blank page? Uh, I, I, I'm not, a am not compulsively, uh, intending to write every single day. Not anymore. Anyway, I, I think I, I worked harder at it for years. I worked, uh, uh, just a regular job, day job, you know? And so, uh, every other scrap of time I had, I took advantage of to force myself to do something. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, if you're if you're doing that, if you're out in the world, if you're having experiences constantly, you have a whole lot of stuff that you can tap into to write about. Uh, 
and then always was reading also on the side other poets and so you that's always a thing that happens with me every time i pick up a a book by another poet or whatever i just feel the urge to respond mm -hmm. so you know that, that I, I one of my books a few years a couple of years ago was entitled the imitation blues because i think we're constantly doing this i think we're constantly bouncing things like a ping pong game back and forth and playing with language putting our own in there uh, I don't see it as, uh, as as plagiarism or anything like that. We're all standing on the shoulders of everybody before us, and everybody after us will rip off things that they've get garnered from other people. I mean, that's what we do. That's communication, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so that's. I mean, it, it comes from everywhere. And of course, when I first started writing, I think uh, I thought a lot about where I came from. And my, my and the stories and memories. I have a pretty good memory, so I have a lot of kid type memory stuff too. And I and those were interesting stories that I wanted to recreate. And always, it's about trying to establish some sense of connection. I think with people, uh, people I don't know, but also the people I've known, but you can't ever really know. Mm -hmm. You know that thing. So, yeah, just yeah. it's just that. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's hear another poem. Okay. Uh, and then there's then there's this kind of stuff that you know I mean after you 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 as you know I'm sure you write for so long you start writing about whatever hits into your head I remember somebody told me uh, that they never write poems about poetry and I thought you're kidding <laughs> I would write poems about poetry all the time so here's another one this one's called expose oh what page oh it's on uh, it's on page one fifty four okay thanks. Little short line couplet thing. To write poetry is to know comfort, the temporary calm security floating in the eye of the storm. To be left alone, the slipstream gatherer affording time one needs to imagine empathy, the privilege of dreaming struggle and pain, chronicling the moment to moment hunger and fear of those not born into the leisure you know. To write poetry is to act politically, record the language chosen by you to disguise and reveal what appears to be important, your view, completely aware no one has a clue. <laughs> Yeah, that was expose. Great ending there. Um, and it's true. I mean, we are all fumbling in the dark. And um, and to go along with this uh, this this theme, I think the title poem, In the Weeds, um, shows off what poetry does for you, too, that metaphor of, of laying there and, and noticing. Um, is that something that you've always been drawn to? Like as a kid, did you were you the kind of kid who would stare at, at bugs and lay in the weeds and and um, you know, was that something that's sort of a part of your soul or is that something that you've like, cultivated through poetry? No, that is a, that is a, a part of my soul. And, you know, I mean, it's the thing that I have an odd sort of trajectory on becoming a poet or what I, when I started calling myself a poet. I never did that until I was in my 40s. I never felt like I could say that. And, and particularly coming from this working class sort of background, when you're working with people, they don't give a shit if you're a poet. I mean, you're working with them. You need to get a job done, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but, but uh, as a kid, 
you know, looking backwards now to, to when you were a kid, I knew I was a poet from the time I was a kid. A poet is someone who spends time in their own head, observing the world and trying to figure out what the hell is going on and, and enjoying things or being, you know, impressed with things, whatever. And I, I did that right from, from the get-go. And I think I spent um, maybe a, even a little bit more time doing it simply because I came from a, I came from a family that had alcoholism in the family. And, and, and that's an unsettling situation for a kid, right? I mean, it, it definitely, uh, you, you're, you're trying to, you, you, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop all the time for the shit to hit the fan, so to speak. And so you're spending a lot of time maybe away from the house out by yourself. And, and you've got this emotional thing you're carrying with you, but you take that to the landscape or you take it to a private place and then you breathe into it, you observe, you know, I mean, so I think a lot of it came from those experiences very young. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, just to, I mean, I hate bringing it back to this politics question so much, but it occurred to me as you were talking that just that is the thing that's bugging me so much about politics lately, is that we can't acknowledge that we don't have a clue. Like we we get our clues our clues assigned to us, and then we we pretend we have a clue, but we have no clue. <laughs> no, and that's that's I mean, one of the problems. That's one of the problems I see with the whole uh, 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 social media constant stream of everybody having a goddamn opinion on everything, as if. You know, I mean, all of a sudden we we feel like we have to have the last word in these these conversation streams and whatnot, or we need to say something. You don't need to say anything. I mean, no one cares half the time. I mean, if you have something really worthwhile to kind of say, that's a good thing to do. But the rest of the time, you know, it's like like my grandmother said, right? If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. That's not a bad philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's just that the, the world is so impossibly complex. Like the the reductive answers that we have to all the the problems that have already been reduced are just not not real. Um, so yeah. I don't know, and it's just it's just frustrating. And it feels to me, poetry is a tool for exploring and trying to make sense of the things that are too complicated to understand. And so, you know, that's why I'm drawn to poetry myself. Um, and, and, and we want poems that do that, too. So um, anyway, let, let's hear another poem. Um, well, you know, and I, I guess uh, along that same line of thinking and in the political world and whatnot, uh, because everything is political as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the, the family is political. Everything is political. So but this this poem uh, in honor of uh, Juneteenth today, our, our, our national holiday. Uh, I'll read this. Champagne music. It's on page uh, 71. Okay. Champagne music. I watched the Lawrence Welk show on PBS last night half drunk and was struck by the blatantly overt whiteness of it. Like this was the model vision of, reinvent of reinvention to make America great again. A sea of whites first history, a legacy of church going, well off, content and polite whites. Smiling Germanic Christians in red, 
white and blue outfits, swaying slowly to the orchestra, following the white baton, waving hypnotically under glinting chandeliers. Nary an off-white complexion in the bunch. Or anywhere on screen, I frantically scanned no hint of that darker American story of a melting or melding pot. Nothing but Anglo blood bobbing to the polka beat till Arthur stepped out to dance one of his pat Mr. Welk style taps where he'd step tap and fetch flap in a passionate Mr. Duncan climax. No smart-ass Sammy Davis Jr. act, more of a token-appropriate Bojangles show of kowtow and restraint to make us feel good again. Generous for creating a space, a prominent place in the program to recognize the physical abilities of his race. Yes, it was mighty white of us. That was a uh, champagne music. Again, we're we're reading poems from In the Weeds. Um so so what was it like growing up um in Montana? Um you know, what was your childhood like and you, and you mentioned too um you know having other careers besides poetry in, until more recently. Um so so what was the the beginning part of your life like? Um you know, what was uh what was childhood like there and then and then what 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 were the jobs you were doing? Yeah, well, childhood was, uh, it was a very small town. I grew up in a town of about 300 people. It was a, uh, it was a terminal uh, for the Milwaukee Railroad, the Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Paul and Pacific. It was a transcontinental railroad that, that was established in 1908 and went bankrupt in 1980. And uh, my dad worked for that railroad. So that's, that's the little town I grew up in. And, uh, you know, we had like 60 kids total in high school. I mean, there was no, and and you were, you were 30 miles from nowhere and no one did anything except grow up in that town. And then you, you went to school, you, and you played sports, uh, if you were a boy, because you didn't do that. If you were a girl, uh, you know, it was just, it was that world at that time. And, um, I, I, after that, uh, immediately I wanted to, you know, move on and see the, the great world, which that turned out to be a short hop to Missoula, which was 30 miles away down up the Clark Fork River. And uh, I went to college there and started going to school. And, and, and that was I, I really dug that. I mean, I just dug the, the information, the learning, the people around me. And this was all, you know, this was I graduated from high school in 72. So. We had we were like reaping the benefits of all that struggle that came out of the the 60s and the civil rights movement and and young people had more status you could vote uh, all these things were happening mainly because of the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and and other issues so so I mean I grew up in that environment uh, and and my old man worked for the railroad he was a union guy he was Irish. Uh, his his parents had come over from Ireland. They were immigrants, you know, uh, early part of the last century. So they were very strongly union. And Butte, Montana was super strong union, uh, IWW kind of union. And so I came from that kind of a, a, a background politically. 
and uh, and had a rebellious attitude to begin with, kind of handed to me in my DNA, and and continued uh, down that path, exploring that. So a lot of the first poetry I wrote after being exposed by this guy when I was in high school was like, you know, burn down the goddamn world and, you know, uh, Mara Cancer and, you know, poems like that. And uh, I, I saw, you know, when you first contacted me, Roy Bentley was the guy that you had mm. spoken to. And I watched his thing that you did with him. And that was super cool because we were a whole lot kind of from the same neck of the woods or time era or class, if I felt like to me. And uh, but all those impressions that music and pop culture and and the civil rights movement and all that came out of that made a huge influence on you if you were around at that time or it didn't i mean you were on one one side or the other there was definitely there's a definite comparison between the split that was going on in that in in the world at that time when i was growing up love it or leave it and the bullshit we're dealing with right now in this political gridlock situation mm -hmm. very similar very similar yeah yeah for sure um and, and and you mentioned uh, you know the careers. What so what jobs were you working on before before getting the poetry more seriously? So I, you know, I mean, I I, uh, I thought uh, uh, I, I well I took everything. Yeah, I mean to begin with, you're young and you do anything and everything. You work as a, a cashier. You work as a janitor. You I worked for the Forest Service. I I did survey work for the for the highway department. The kinds of jobs that you could get when you were in Montana and you were a young person just looking for work. And, and I always was bouncing kind of back and forth between trying to go to school and then getting sick of going to school because I didn't feel like I fit in there in that culture. So then I would try to go out and get a, a job again doing something. Eventually, I sort of landed on uh, <laughs> a semi-career as a furniture mover and truck driver. And I actually did, did that over a period of time for about 20 years. And, and I really kind of dug it, you know, mm -hmm. so not only do you get did you get a workout physically and feel uh, some kind of reward from that. But if you do, you did something, you got it done, you pleased the customer. There was a puzzle to making it all work perfectly. So nothing was broken. And it was this reward. And, you know, it's a service job, but I, I dug it, you know, mm -hmm. so I did that for a long time. And then I I also then uh, in my 40s went back to graduate school and uh, and got this MFA. And then out of that, I started teaching young people poetry in the school. So like one or two days a week, I'd do that. And then the other rest of the time, I'd, I'd move furniture and, and, and deliver stuff. And then in the summers I did, I was always on the road and, and, and moving furniture. Mm -hmm. you know? And I was gonna like, how was were you writing poetry then while you were doing the furniture? Yeah, because I was gonna say I um my favorite job I worked summers um for a while landscaping and then I'd work in the in the group home um during the during the the winter, um and right. I just love that job every summer, um because you'd be physically exhausted but you'd be like daydreaming the whole time, and totally. and and you know and you'd be doing sort of routine things and then the same thing you were mentioning where you'd go to a house that was just a mess. And you'd clean, and you'd clean up the whole yard, and you'd put little flower beds down, and little rocks to, you know, and you'd feel good about yourself that you did something, you know, the before and after picture, and then your whole head would be full of poems at the end of the day too. It was just great, on, and on I really sorts of, on all sorts of levels, right? From the dirt to the people to yeah. 
to the weather that day or an animal, a bird that flew in or something would stick in your head and boom, it was a trigger to write a, to write something. Yeah. And, you know, on that same line, I did, uh, I also taught high school. I taught high school English. I mean, I, I was, a, I was, I was trying to sort of chase into my, my old man's footsteps, trying to find out what made him tick, what, what, what drove him to into, into escape uh, through alcohol, which I got that pretty well kind of figured out now, uh, it, besides the addiction factor, once you get so far along. Uh, but uh, so I, I tried to get screwed up. And of course, you were living in that time when the drugs were there and, and booze. And so I was and, and at a certain point, uh, my wife, because I, I, I got I've been married all my life, you know, I've I'm this will be close to 49 years next year next month man. Wow, congratulations yeah yeah so I mean I so she put up with me through a whole lot of shit and uh, at a certain point she said you know I'm really getting tired of this we were about 30 almost and I thought well maybe we should uh, change gears maybe I, we should maybe think about you know having a kid and if I have a kid I'm not going to do that shit because I know what it was like as a kid to grow up that way so uh we did that kind of i went back and got an english degree teaching high school english for about nine years so that was a, a different detour in the middle of this uh breakup between the moving situation you know in the in my 30s basically mm-hmm. and I used to raise a couple of sons uh or got them going anyway so it was uh uh that was an interesting uh I've just a lot of different things have kind of come in and out of my world, but, but, Oh, what you were talking about earlier in terms of getting poems out of the work you were doing and and the moving type stuff. If when I was teaching, I was so exhausted mentally because of the the reading and the prepping and and the reading of papers and the responding and the, just all of that, it pulled from the same well that Mm -hmm. right. And so I knew that I had to stop doing that. So after about nine years, I just said, I'm going to go back to moving furniture and, and writing poems, you know? Yeah. Well, you anticipated my next question because uh, Jimmy Pappas here says teaching high school was like planting a flower bed for me. And I just can't imagine if it, it seems to me like it would just drain you, um, you know, because it is that same, you know, speaking you know, of talking all day and, and planning and reading and analyzing and grading. Um, that's just the, the same part of your brain that you have to use for poetry. I don't know how people do it. I guess on, you know, the summers maybe, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but it's the same with, with, um, with, uh, running a literary magazine. Like I just, it's hard for me to write now. And I, I sort of glorify those days where I didn't have to think and I could just, my mind was free. You know, it feels like your mind is, uh, in shackles when you're, you know, do using it for your labor instead of your, your body. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and may, maybe it just depends on the individual, uh, but that's the kind of individual I am, for mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> well, let's hear uh, the next poem. I hear another poem. Well, um, go to uh, some kind of a more of a narrative thing or a memory going back in time. This is a, this is a little poem on page 83. It's called Purple Hearts. I remember the vet with no legs under the awning in front of Woolworth's dime store, selling pencils in a tin cup, perched on his creeper, half a head shorter than me. Almost Christmas, he was bundled up in a wool coat and cap, fingers cut out of his gloves. As the big flakes fluttered down, I wondered how he got around 
I could see his breath when he sang out, help a vet today. My mother paid, told me, choose a pencil, a yellow eagle or white flag. I felt ashamed, looked down on him as he, and he didn't return my gaze. He turned his head when he said, thank you, ma'am, pencils, help a vet today, just a nickel for those who served. God bless America, and rattled his cup as he watched the parade of legs and bags swinging by on their way home to a party or to another store to buy more. I could see for him every holiday was still a war and white Christmases were a pain in the ass. That was uh, Purple Hearts, again from In the Weeds, the newest book by Mark Gibbons. Um, about the teaching, Mark, um, you know, you mentioned uh, in, in your bio, it says you, met, you know, taught in one-room schoolhouses and all the way up the ladder to adults. Um, did you, is there a certain group that you found the most receptive to poetry? Um, you know, we have the Young Poets Anthology, and I did poetry from the schools for a while in L.A., and uh, the kids, it seemed uh -huh. to me, just loved it the younger they were, almost, um, as long as they were old enough to actually, you know, write sentences out. Um, what was your experience right. like with that? Who, who is the best audience for, for learning poetry? Uh, I, the, 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 I spent more time teaching in Missoula through a, a nonprofit called the Missoula Writing Collaborative. And uh, they have, for the most part, I taught third, fourth, and fifth graders in the public schools. And, and, you know, it was like fourth grade was the sweet spot, you know, fourth grade was the sweet spot. It was like, if you, you, if you tried to schedule, if I had to see those three different classes in a year, I'd schedule the fifth graders first because they were still almost fourth graders <laughs> because by the time you get in, they, you got in the fifth grade, you were starting to play those cards a little closer to your chest. You know, uh, puberty things were starting to happen to people. Uh, they were a little bit more concerned about what other people thought and a little bit more embarrassed. Maybe fourth grade would come in the middle because you could do fourth grade any time of year in the fourth grade. And they were golden. They were just, they could read, they could write and they wanted to share. They wanted to get up and read it out loud. And the chemistry and the magic that happens in a classroom when kids get up and share what they write is incredible, as you know, probably. Mm -hmm. I mean, what happens is that kid in the back of the room that nobody talks to and doesn't get played with a lot gets up and reads something that blows them away. And all of a sudden there's a new respect that's, that happens within the chemistry of the classroom. Teachers love it. Mm -hmm. My teachers have always loved it. And uh, and then, of course, in the spring of the year, I then I'd try to work with third graders because they've gotten better and they're close to being fourth graders. They can write better, read better. And uh, but but they're they're golden, too. So I, I felt fourth grade was a sweet spot. Yeah, and that's exactly the age I'd pick too. Just and mostly it's from uh, doing the Rattle Young Poets anthology every year. 
But that age right mm-hmm. there, it, it, it's really the self-consciousness. Like there's some like, like mode in the brain where you have to become self-conscious in order. It's when the, you know, the, it, the puberty hits. I mean, it really is. And then, and then people become self-conscious and then you don't have that freedom. And it feels like poets for the rest of their lives are trying to get back to that place where they could just, I, I love from uh, Zen and the Art of Archery where they talk about, um, you know, how it would be, um, you know, as if um, the, the objects were playing with a child as much as the child's playing with the objects. And that sense of like the poem playing with you, is what is that that magic right. that we're all seeking that we rarely find but it seems like you could sit down in a room of fourth graders and they get it every time like they're in that spot like that's where they live um so so my question now is how right. do you because you seem to write with that kind of freedom it doesn't seem like you hold back much there's like a, a very straight line into your veins it feels like when you're writing i'm at least reading this book um how do you get to that place of um of, of unselfconsciousness that that we're all trying to get back to uh, yeah, I don't know uh, a, a exactly how you get to that place. Uh, uh, I don't. I, I'm not sure. You know. I mean, I. I. Uh, you just. You, you don't give a shit. You just have to say I don't care. I. I mean, that's part of it. You know. And, and you know, along those lines of, uh, I was so thrilled years ago when Rattle took a couple of my poems a long time back, you know, and, but it wasn't long after that, where personally, I kind of stopped submitting, mm-hmm. I just kind of stopped doing it. Uh, and mainly it was because I just, I got tired of the exercise and all the time I was putting into it. And a lot of what that playful, goofy shit no one ever wanted, you know, and I thought, well, I just want to do what I want to do. And, and so I just kind of stuck to doing what I wanted to do. And, uh, and I'd show it around to people. Sometimes people would ask me. And so I, I'd give them a poem and, uh, but, you know, I don't know exactly how to uh, answer that question, I guess. But uh, it, it is, it is a thing that I think that, uh, that poetry offers us. Poetry offers us the opportunity to do that. It offers us the opportunity to be honest. Mm-hmm. Just let it out. Just let it go, you know. Just let it go. And don't be afraid. If it fails, it fails. I mean, and, and it might not with one person, it might with another. It's like music, right? Some people like country and some people like rap, you know. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, so, so how does it go, um, you know, without submitting much? Because I'm in the same place as you. I haven't made a submission in like a 12 years, 10 years, something like that. And right. sometimes people will ask for a poem and I'll say, oh, sure, I'll, I got tons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but I don't, I don't really feel, you know, I was so disenthused by publishing a book, I guess, and the, just the, the extra marketing of it or whatever. And I just, I didn't want to do that. I didn't really care. So yeah. I, I, I never, I haven't done it since, but, but you have, you know, how many books, 12, 11 books, something like that. How does the book prop, you know, book publishing process work for you? You know, because there's the idea that you have to publish a certain number of poems in magazines, and then a publisher will look at your book. And if you don't, they won't. But obviously, if you're not sending them out much, uh, you're still publishing the books. And so how does that work? Yeah, well, you know, and that's, I mean, that's just kind of dumb luck. Uh, and it's kind of running into people that like to publish. They like what you do. And, uh, and maybe it's just from, you know, being around for a while in a small community. I, I know that this uh, uh, Foothills Publishing, uh, little tiny poetry press out of upstate New York, uh, Craig Churry, who was, we had some books with them, 
they, they they had asked him to edit the poetry series, and he had gone to school in, in Missoula in poetry. So he came back out here to look for poets, thinking, well, maybe I'll do a Montana poetry series. And so he started doing that, and, and I was uh, involved in that and helping them sort of find people. And now I've kind of taken that over. But uh, I've done four books of poetry with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- they like what uh, what I do. Still the onus of selling books, that's all pretty much on me. They're not any marketing machine. They're not out there trying to, you know, uh, make me a bestseller because it ain't going to happen. Right. We know this. It ain't going to happen. So, I mean, I, I think the fact that the books are in print and they're available, I'm happy about that. A lot of people who have, you know, had books, they they've appreciated that they've got them, but what else are you going to do with your time? Mm-hmm. I don't know. That, that's kind of, I've been lucky. And the first, uh, my first two uh, books uh, were done by a, a friend of mine, uh, uh, he, he, we both were in graduate school together and he came out and he wanted to publish books. And so he, he created a, a press called Camphorweed Press. They originally were out of Seattle and then they became, uh, uh, they down in Flagstaff, but he published two of my books in, uh, in about five years. And then another four, I say, were done by, uh, Foothills. Uh, so, I mean, it's, you know, so a lot of it's just been that connections. And then this last one, uh, uh, the In the Weeds book, the Drum Lumen Institute is a, it was an institute founded in Helena, Montana, that wanted to just publish Montana writers. And I had come into contact with them as an editor for the two previous books. And so after that, I said, well, you ever interested in doing a book for me? And they were like, totally, send us a manuscript. So that, that mm-hmm. kind of you just you know word of mouth interpersonal connections and a lot of goddamn luck i guess <laughs> yeah um well i want to read a good number of more poems so let's do another poem if anybody has any questions for mark um please leave them in the chat windows on either facebook or youtube and i'll pass them along but let's hear another poem mark okay this one is uh this one's a little longer and a little different so i'll read it it's called uh it's on page 130 it's called license for ghosts License for ghosts. We're born with it, the launch code embedded in our DNA, tiny swastikas mark that particular spot, the scream hole, that tumbling roll into our collectively unique psychoses distraught. The wilderness beyond our agreed upon delusions of tree and trout and time. Enter truth or death or why. Consider fucking. Consider the sublime. Questioning anything we decide, we must ignore the coffins, the mundane coughing. Stop rubbing for, stop grubbing for whatever this blind drive to survive. For the most part, keep our eyes on the lies the stories we tell of prizes and glories to avoid our purgatories, these little heavens in hell. They say never hand over the keys, never let chaos drive. If there is a point in being alive, trust the myth makers or the scientists, go with the flow. How could we possibly know more by sleeping with ghosts? We know how to be afraid, to bluff, 
to bully, to blame. We know to confront, we know to comfort, to love, to try to make it enough because we know enough to know we don't know enough. The best we can do is huddle, cling to and cuddle each other, gauging this strangeness, this insanely fragile life we hold so dear for no clear reason other than we are here. And yes, it is a miracle. And yes, I do have a cat. Felix, our ninth to be exact. And yes, I am married almost 50 years now. We have two grown sons, survived 24,000 some sons, rising and setting actors, doing this dance of living here beyond aloof and aware. Our self-delusional work of ignoring the patient elephant waiting to be recognized. That one Poe loved teasing, amusing muse of mine. And in that regard or toward that positively brutal end, the only end being yours and mine, the end of this shit shift, I dare you to define it more precisely or implore me to lighten and listen up. Just pour me a drink instead. Until your mirror and minions, your virtues and theories about living this life, maybe retelling the legends again in the lingo of flies, about about the how and what of who the fuck we are, why, before and after we die. I have tried to crawl inside you, guessing it's what the elephant wants me to do, figuring there must be a plan. Let my ghosts spin it this way. I don't expect you to agree, but I call this poetry my reason for letting chaos drive. Very interesting. Now that's just yeah, that was bunch of for ghosts. Yeah, from in the weeds. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know why I'm. This is sort of a, a weird question, uh, but I'm I, for that probably maybe want to ask. What is the strangest thing you've encountered in your life? Would you say is there a weird coincidence? Have you in Big Sky Country seen a UFO? Um, have you seen a ghost at anything like that? That makes you wonder. <laughs> you know, what more is there in this world? No, I, I, uh, now let me think about that. Of course, you know, if I really, if I really want to stretch back and, and think about, you know, drug type experiences, I could could probably stretch my head into that pretty good. But I, you know, realistically encountering the world, what you think is sober. I don't know that, uh, that I've had any, any sort of, uh, you know, always, always, I think life is full of coincidences, you know, Mm -hmm. and we, we see this in numbers and constant these coincidences happening and and these strokes of luck you know i mean like this whole for example this whole poet this poet laureate thing i mean this is the weirdest goddamn thing that i just i couldn't figure it out i mean i i knew i was i was i i agreed to be nominated and i would go in but i mean our governor uh, of the state, uh, you know, he's a very strong, staunch Republican governor and sort of uh, leans to the right of all things. I had, I, I am just mystified that that I'm the poet laureate. You know, that I, I didn't see that coming. So that was a surprise. I mean, life is full of surprises, mm-hmm. odd sort of things that you just don't, uh, you don't know why or what the hell's going on, and. Uh, 
but I, I like to make mysteries. I mean, I like to, I like to, you know, I, I love movies. I'm a, I'm a movie nut, you know? So I've, uh, I, I try to just, you know, stay open, but personally I, I've not had any actual ghost stories, uh, just the ones that we've all had where we thought we were going to be around a ghost or something, but it really <laughs> was, you know, my imagination. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I think we have time for maybe two more poems. So, so what do you want for your second to last poem? Okay. Well, gee whiz, let me think about that. I'll read this. This is, uh, this is another uh, narrative poem. It's the last poem in the book. It's, uh, in this, uh, in the weeds book, it's on page 209. It's called driven and it's dedicated to uh, another, uh, poet and, friend, another writer here in Montana, Melissa uh, Stevenson, who, who wrote a, a memoir, a really great memoir called Driven. And uh, and this was just kind of uh, a gift or whatever, a response type poem we talked about earlier, kind of back at her. Driven. The old man smiled at the precocious three-year-old serving him a beer in the backyard gathering after the funeral. She worked the group like a skilled barmaid, knew her cans and brands, remembering faces and orders without a hitch. He leaned toward me and whispered, she's been here before. Of course, it was a joke, but also a metaphor. He was Irish for fuck's sake, though it was obvious she literally knew a hams from a Budweiser had done this before. He played up the ghostly myth that she was an old soul inhabiting a child's body. And I doubt he believed in reincarnation any more than he detested resurrection. But I loved the idea, the mystery. It made me think, imagine where she'd been and what I remember from being a kid exposed to adults struggling and losing it, the pains and pleasures of surviving shit, plus death, that ultimate trip, the exclamation point, all of it, signifying nothing. Those boys and girls who get that early education, grow older than their years, getting a jump on the jaded journey. Many have turned to art to manage bouts of obsession and depression. Maybe she will. I know I began talking to myself at an early age. I started out addressing God, but got no response. So I became my own best listener. My friends are driven to chase music and movement, shape language and form, create images, sounds, rattle bones to ashes, dust the cosmic storm, and follow their dreams into the unknown. That was Driven. Again, we're, we're in the weeds, Mark Gibbons' newest book. Um, <clears throat> A technical question now, Mark. I noticed, yeah. you know, reading this book, um, a lot of the poems use regular punctuation and capitalization. Um, some poems capitalize the beginning of every line, and some poems don't use punctuation at all and capitalize anything. 
Um, what is the difference? What makes a poem be formatted a certain way in your head? Is there a sound that you're capturing or a feel? What is it? I don't, I, I, I mean, that's, that's just kind of, uh, one of those sort of unexplainable things. I mean, uh, uh, who is the, uh, uh, Jeff, was that the first guy that yeah, we heard? Jeff, yeah, Jeff, yeah. Yeah, Jeff mentioned, Jeff mentioned, I remember that, that he, he wrote in a wide variety of forms and styles and whatnot. And I think a lot of times that goes back to the imitation bullshit I talked about earlier, where I, I I'm impressed by different forms. I mean, I, I don't write a lot of, uh, uh, of traditional forms. I have written some and I do it sometimes on a lark almost, you know, sonnets and things like that. Uh, I teach kids pantoums and they, they write great pantoums, but I, I, uh, I don't know. I just kind of play around. And so, I, and I like to do different things. So I don't have a particular style necessarily, even though I think I probably write more short line stuff than anything maybe, but, uh, I don't know. You know, I, I just like to mess around. I like each poem to be, uh, what was it? Was, like, was that a, a, a Creeley line that each poem should be a, a celebration of its own occasion or something like that? It, 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 this is its little thing. These are the clothes that we're going to put on this guy. And I don't have any uh, particular reason for it sometimes. Maybe sometimes I do. <laughs> That's kind of how it works, you know. Interesting. Um, and, and last thing, um, is there a poet or, or a you know, are certain poets that you've learned the most from? Like, is there one poem you'd say is like the biggest influence or, or, you know, reading what they've said about poetry influenced you a lot or made you think in different ways? Is there a poet um, that, that stands out to you for that as you look back at your career? Uh, there's just so many. There's just so many, you know, and I mean, you know, you can go back a, a long way and to people like Williams uh, and then you can come to people that are in your neighborhood, like Dick Hugo, uh, Richard Hugo had a pretty big influence in Montana and on me. Uh, Jim Welch did too, but but then there was the Beats. I, I, I was really super influenced by the Beats when I was younger. Uh, I, I really dug all of that kind of thing. And, uh, but no, nobody in particular, I just keep sampling. Bukowski, I read a lot of frickin' Bukowski when I was younger. And I still go back to Bukowski periodically. I think he's just, you know, honest, he's direct, and he doesn't give a shit. Uh, and I like all those things in a poet, uh, mm -hmm. whoever they are, whatever they're writing. And then to put you on the spot, uh, what was the, the last great book you read, like a newer book, the, the last one that really knocked your socks off? Uh, of poetry? Yeah, of poetry. Oh, wow. Let me think about that. Because I've been reading, you know, I mean, just collecting and whatnot. I, uh, uh, God, I don't even know. I don't even know if I want to say anything in particular. Uh, the, the two that are on my uh, bedstead in there right now is the Ada Limon uh, collection, and another one was uh, Young Young Eve Shockley, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. uh, I was so I was reading them here recently, but uh, I and I I constantly go back. One of the things I picked up here uh, recently too was the the complete <laughs> Jim Harrison, you know, it's like, I don't really need this because I think I already have everything on the shelf, but you got to have that book, you know, and, uh, but I Harrison is somebody you can always go back to over and over again. He's a, he's a great poet. Um, just so many, there's just so many. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a tough question for sure. It's, it's, yeah. Um, so I think we should close out with this. Um, if this were a Sam Shepard poem, I, I almost forgot about that. 
Oh, oh, okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. That is in, in this little... Yeah, it's imitation, The Imitation Blues, your second-to-last book, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, no, actually, Mostly Cloudy was the... It came out during the pandemic and kind of, you know, floated under the radar. This was just before that. Uh, anyway, this is... Uh, this is just a poem called uh, If This Were a Sam Shepard Poem. The cumuli would be moving fast across the cobalt blue sky, and there'd be horses and cars, sagebrush booming, blooming, and a rattler squirming under a porch. A cowboy would be drinking a beer, and he would wonder at the silence or what would happen next. Then we'd see a jackrabbit crossing the two-lane blacktop. It would stop in the middle on the center line, ears cocked toward shimmering headlights in the distance. A semi would begin taking form. A leathery hand would crush a PBR can, and we'd see an old spur on the heel of a worn-down cowboy boot stomping twice to get the rabbit's attention. The semi would blow his horn, and the cowboy would wave at the truck, standing over the chase lounge he'd been reclining on moments before, and hold his hat down as the semi rolled by, billowing dust and the chemise dress across the road reflected in his mirrored shades, wafting it high above the blonde's knees whose blood-red lips would be posed, a single rose, her arms crossed, suitcase packed. This cowboy would walk by her on his way to the old reservoir pop cooler behind her, on the porch above the snake's home, and he'd pause beside her, turn his head and smile at her profile, and she'd stare at the coyote a good half mile out, looking in their direction as the cowboy would roll up his sleeve, then proceed to the cooler, pull out an ice-cold can of paps. When the coyote would bolt, she'd notice the clouds had stopped their rush across the sky and turned in on each other, boiling gray. The cowboy would pop open the can of beer, and her eyes would follow the sound. He'd tip it back and drain it in three big gulps, then burp and walk back for another asshole, she'd hiss, and a snake tongue would flick in the shade of the porch stairs. What time's your bus? He'd ask. Not soon enough, she'd sigh. And he'd walk back across the road, spurs a jangling, flop down in the sun-worn webbing, and a hawk would whistle overhead, and thunder would rumble and groan, while two gophers would sniff at the rabbit mat on the road. Both heads might turn toward the sound of a diesel engine humming up the highway, or maybe his wouldn't, maybe just hers, and he'd yell, Come on, baby, you know you're making the biggest mistake of your life, to which she'd deadpan and mutter, I'm guessing I already managed that, as the greyhound would pull over and stop between them. The cowboy would reach under his lawn chair 
and the rattler's tail would go off. He'd grab his Smith & Wesson 44, stand up and cock the hammer, see her walking inside toward the rear of the bus, then slide into the window seat. When the bus driver would close the door and dump the air, the cowboy would raise his pistol, say, adios, baby. Watch the rows open to mouth the words, fuck off, jackass, forever. The diamondback would slither into the sun, and when the cowboy would pull the trigger, lightning would strike out on the prairie. When the, when the coyote had stood, when the where the coyote had stood, where the coyote had stood, and the cowboy would fire again and again and again and again until every chamber was empty. Then the driver would toot and wave. The snake would coil in a clump of sagebrush, and before the cowboy would cross over for another beer, he'd sit down in the cloudburst and reload. Yeah, very fun poem to end on. That was if I this were a sham shepherd poem. And that's going to be the prompt for next week, which is why I want to make sure we got to this. So we're doing something new where uh, we're going to be asking poets if they want to contribute a prompt for the next week. And if they don't, we'll just provide our own. But if they do, we're, it's fun to kind of tie the shows together. So this week's prompt is going to be write a poem called If This Were a Blank and then Insert Somebody Poem. Uh, so there you go. That's the prompt for this week. And um, Mark, it's just been great to talk to you. So fun. Um, you know, love the book and, uh, and thanks for being a guest today. Yeah. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Appreciate it. Pleasure's online. Thanks a lot. Enjoy. Yep. Take care. That was Mark Gibbons. His newest book is In the Weeds, which we have right here. Uh, you can find more of Mark's work at his website, which is uh, Gibbons Poetry. That's G-I-B-B-O-N-S poetry.com. Now, we're going to open up the open lines in just a little bit, but we have a special guest coming up. Um, KHDM is here to talk about NFTs. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, stick around because you learn about what N NFTs can do for poetry. Um, and we're also going to talk about her uh, poem that we had uh, for Poets Respond a week and a half ago or so. Um, so stick tight for that. I'm going to do the um, get the uh, link for the open lines. If you'd like to join the open lines, um, which we'll do after KHDM, um, I have the link right here, and I'm about to deploy. I'm leaving this link in the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. There's the Zoom link pinned to the top on YouTube. Here it comes on Facebook. Um, if you'd like to share a poem, the first thing you do is email it to me at, at uh, openmic, that's openmic at rattle.com. And uh, then I can show it on screen as you read. And then join the Zoom. The Zoom is just for when you're going to read a poem. So you can join the Zoom when it gets to your turn, read your poem, and then go back to YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or wherever you're watching it so you can have the whole experience of seeing the poems as you, um, as you hear folks read them. Um, so just pop over only if you want to share a poem. If you don't uh, want to share a poem and you just want to keep reading and enjoying, uh, watching and enjoying the open lines, then uh, just sit tight where you are. Uh, we're going to be right back in just a moment with KHDM. So hang on. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. I mentioned KHDM is here. She had a poem transitory about inflation um, a couple weeks ago. But I discovered that, uh, that Katie here is big into NFT poetry, which is just fascinating. And uh, we decided, I'll just announce it right now, we're going to be doing a, a tribute to NFT poetry um, issue 
next summer. So next summer, I know uh, the poet John Pock is, is into that too. I know there's a whole community around it now that I've just learned about, which can be really fun to explore. Um, but a lot of people might not have any idea what NFTs are and what NFT poetry is. So uh, we'll talk to, to K- Katie first. Here she is, uh, KHDM. Hey, Katie. Excited. I'm super passionate about NFT poetry, so I'm really glad somebody else wants to talk about it too. <laughs> so, I mean, I wanted to, to share your poem first, but I couldn't. I couldn't help blabbing about the NFT stuff. Um, so, let's just start talking about the NFT stuff, and then we'll read. We'll read transitory in a little bit. Okay. But um, so so explain to everybody. Maybe I'll put it my simple way, and then you can tell me why it's wrong. Okay. So, why it's so, right? I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so so in my how I I think of it is NFTs are sort of like um like documents or like like contracts that you can put on the blockchain, which makes it publicly um, unchangeable, basically. And what the blockchain is, is what runs cryptocurrencies. And that is this sort of technology that allows for a ledger to be decentralized. So that basically, you, you would have to hack 51% of the computers in order to change anything. And, and, you know, unless you did other things that you can be, there's ways you can get around stuff. But in theory, it's a way to decentralize keeping a ledger. And that makes like contracts and things and currency public. And so there's this sort of unstoppable public currency, which is what Bitcoin is. And, um, and so what you can do with NFTs are make a contract saying kind of who owns the poem and, and have like royalties set up and all sorts of things. So ownership stays consistent throughout so that is how I'd explain it. Um, how would, how would, what have I got wrong? And is that how you'd explain it? I'm really glad that you were the one to explain it because I think that you did a great job and I was nervous actually about it. So that was great. I would just add that the reason I'm particularly excited about what NFTs are doing for art is that they solve the issue of provenance. So I see it as kind of like from the first time anything was painted. So like a caveman did something on a wall, probably another caveman was like, hey, I painted that and they got into an argument. And this solves that problem, right? So it's a really big deal for art. And then going further, it's a really big deal for poetry to be able to do that. And then also for self-publishing, to be able to put your poems out there like immediately. There are so many ways you can go about doing that now. And there's just an explosion of poems on the internet. And I think we all are excited about that. Yeah, it's the one thing. I mean, when you um, when we started talking about about this um, after publishing this poem, um, you know, I, I sort of saw your Twitter account, I think, and all the people that are involved in NFT poetry that you're following and talking to. And there's a real, it seems like a very vibrant, like community of people that are really enthusiastic and supportive of each other um, surrounding it, which is what I always look for actually in a theme. I'm always looking for some kind of community that has something that kind of like gels them together and is interesting uh, and different. And so that's why I was like, oh, we got to do an issue on this. Um, so, so how, I don't know. I mean, I know you probably don't know the answer, but how many people are into this? I know, I know John Poker, I don't even know how to say his name. It's Poker Potch or whatever. Um, the founder of 32 Poems. He has this whole journal um, where everything you publish um, is an NFT, and then you end up getting royalties if it ever sells, um, no matter how far in the future that is, which is really cool. It just changes the way um, you know the ec- economics of poetry work. Uh, and he also got something where like each line is like a micro NFT or something too for some other project. I can't keep up. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk to him. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk to him for the issue. But um, but yeah. So so how many people are in this community, and and how much does a does a poem sell for these days? <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> There's a, okay, first we'll tackle how many people. Well, that's obviously a hard question to answer, but I think the important thing is that it's growing every day. I mean, if you were to look at how many people have published a poem as an NFT, I mean, it's, it's definitely hundreds, if not thousands, I think. 
And I mean, new stuff is happening all the time. So for example, in the last couple of days, there have been these platforms that have come up where you can publish an NFT that's just text, like just written. You don't need an image or anything like that. And in the span of, I saw one of those platforms got a thousand NFTs in, in the first day. And so these things are just growing all the time. And then another reason I'm so excited about NFT poetry is that the price on what you can sell a poem for, you know, you can choose to sell a poem for 50 cents or, you know, or just make it and send it to your friends for basically free. I mean, I bought a poem today that I really liked for like 75 cents. Like how many people get to say that? That's pretty amazing, right? And um, on the high side, though, you know, you have names that are being established, like Sasha Styles is a big name that Rattle, you guys published earlier this year, too. And so she's having poems go for, you know, hundreds of dollars and things like that, too. Um, so there's a huge, huge range, and it doesn't need to be thought of as though it's just like, oh, well, the poems are going for so, so much money, when really one of the things I'm most excited about is the ability to say like, hey, my friend wrote this poem, I can buy it. And then they're like, hey, somebody bought my poem. And it's just like, that's why the community is growing so much right now, in part because everybody just wants more poems and we're just here to support each other. So I'm really happy to be part of it because so many people are just amazing within the community. Yeah, I'm, I'm of two minds of it. I, like, it's a great replacement, it seems to me. I, I think there's a lot, just a lot of different things that it is. And, um, and, and one of the things is, is just like the way fine art is like a store of wealth for super rich people. I mean, right. You right. know, so there's those like monkey pictures and pet rocks and things that are like a million dollars. Right. That are right. just, um, you know, showing off, you know, it's, um, what, what do they call it in, in, um, in biology? The, the display of how much extra resources you can waste. I can't remember the phrase for that. But, um, <laughs> but you know, like a baboon's red ass. You know, I can waste all this heat out of my butt, so I'm sexually Look how attractive. Cool I am, kind of yeah, thing. exactly. Yeah. So there, there's that aspect to it, but then there's also this aspect you mentioned of kind of like using it as like a tip jar to actually like monetize what we do as as artists, which is really interesting right. in a way that it solves some problems that we haven't um, um, come across. But then the other thing to me is that one of the things I love is that poetry can't be monetized, you know, like like that it's like exists outside of economy for its own sake and that it's like not part of capitalist systems of like, you know, that the hierarchies that develop and, and, and all that is just completely outside of that because there's so little profit in it. And so I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know. I'm a little a little cautious about um, about, about I, I don't know. I'm kind of mixed feelings about it. So so what would you say about that, about about what? um. I don't know, like, how do you see it if, if sort of poems all went in this direction and everybody was making NFT poetry and actually selling them? Um, how do you see the poetry community as a community like responding to that? Well, I think a lot of people feel like you do, first of all. For me personally, I don't really feel that making money from something like lessens that. Like, for example, when you guys published my poem, it made me feel like, amazing and all I wanted to do was write like a billion poems because of that and that was in part you know because of that I mean as a culture part of how we define value is this is worth x amount of money and I don't think that there's shame in that and long term what I really want is for people to be able to make a living just as like I'm an NFT poet not I'm an NFT poet who has to work this other job that I don't really like because I want to be able to, to write poems and so in order to do that, people have to make money doing it in the long run. And I do think that's where we're headed. You know, it's not going to be every single person that puts out an NFT and it's going to sell, you know. Um, but I think that we should value poetry more as a society and that NFTs give us the ability to do that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, very well said. Um, and and so somebody already asked in the chat um, what your website is. So it's it's here. I'll put it on screen so people can oh, look at nice. it. Nice. Somebody asked. Sounds like a plant <laughs> in the audience. Yeah, it's true. It's true. The NFT Poetry Gallery, and that's the nftpoetrygallery.com is where you can find um, Katie's NFTs. And one of the things um, I saw here, create non-fungible tokens. Oh, we didn't even say NFTs stand for non-fungible tokens, which is a, oh, right. a token on the blockchain that, that can't be changed or is, is unique. Right. Um, so there's this page, though, how to create NFT poetry and art, which you have, which goes into great detail of all the things you tried and the, and the sort of foibles failures yeah, <laughs> in the process so so just um, before we move on to the the poem that you wrote um last week um so can you explain just a little bit of how hard this is and is it something that like most people can do um and and do you think it's possible to do it following these steps and how much does it cost and things like that you know the funny thing is about you pointing out that particular page is today i was trying to make time to update that particular page on my website and ran out because it's easier now than that page. And so, yes, I think it's definitely a surmountable problem. And also anybody who tweets at me, my my Twitter handle is just at Katie underscore Dozier. I will help any single person that wants to put up an NFT poem, I will help you do it. So it's more easy, you know, when I'm willing to do that, but it's definitely a surmountable thing. And it's, it's really not as hard as people think it is. And it's gotten a lot easier even since I put that post up, you know, just a few months ago. Yeah, and speaking of not having time, I kind of forgot. I meant to put the submission guidelines ready so they'd be up now, and I, I forgot to today. But the guidelines are just going to be the poem has to be an NFT poem. It has to have a non-fungible token attached to it, and that's right. the only rule for submitting. So the idea is we, you know, we encourage you know, exploring this community. We can talk to people who are doing it and learn about it, which is always fun for me. Um, we right. also encourage people to, to put their poems up as NFTs and experiment with it a little bit just so they can submit. So I think it's a fun, a fun thing to do for next summer. The deadline will be January 15th. Right. I'm really excited that you decided to do that and everything. And I'm sure that, you know, if anybody's watching this that wants to be able to enter that doesn't know how to do an NFT, please just get in touch and I will help anybody. So, <laughs> well, be careful what you say because you're my. <laughs> Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, we get a thousand, two thousand submissions for each tribute, so um, that'd be a lot All of right. uh, DMs. So maybe, Famous <laughs> but, uh, last words. But yeah, so if you don't, if you don't hear back from Katie, that might be why. But anyway, <laughs> um, so let's talk about this poem that we published last week. This was June ninth, um, and I just it, it was a poem that. Um, you know, it, it touched on a topic that not a lot of people do. I mean, I think economics is really interesting, but there aren't many poems about economics. And um, and so it's about the inflation that's going on right now. Um, and it seems like a long time ago to me. It was only 11 days ago, but it seems like a whole world to me because we were <laughs> offline and off the air and stuff. Um, but can you explain how this poem came to be and, and why you wrote it? Sure. So this poem came to be in part because I was thinking of the book Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. It's one of my favorite books from when I was little and about how it rains things. And I was thinking about how, you know, all we're hearing about is inflation. All we're seeing, you know, is inflation. And how would I explain this to my daughter? Because it feels like supply and demand is uh, a politicized concept that I don't think should be politicized. I think it's just a basic economics, you know, concept. And so I wanted to explain it uh, kind of to my daughter, but then my daughter enters the poem. So maybe it didn't end up doing that fully, but that's what I was hoping to accomplish with it. Yeah. Uh, why don't you go ahead and read it? This is transitory. Okay. Transitory. When it rains for days, the value of water plummets and it can rain anything. 
slices of American cheese sail down from the sky. The supermarkets black out their windows and the mice take an early retirement from collecting our crumbs. The hoarders are Dickens's villains that paid less for their toilet paper because they bought it last week. People argue red or blue instead of seeing economic shapes. The most ominous storm cloud of all is the inflation of our vocabulary. Brits have over a hundred words for rain. My five-year-old daughter crinkles the empty plastic stomach lining a cereal box and size shrinkflation. Yeah, that's just great. I, I love the, the lighthearted take at the end about on that. That was transitory. And before you go, um, let me ask, um, wh- how come uh, you go by KHDM? Um, it, it's, I think you might be the first poet who did that with uh, with your actual name on the bottom, too. So it's not like you're hiding. So, so what is, can you explain? I'm sure people are wondering. Well, I'm also a professional poker player. And so I go by Katie Dozier mainly for that. And so it's kind of like, I want to keep the world a little bit apart if somebody wants to find me for something. But then also, I like my name. I was named after my great grandmother, but my full name, are you ready for it? Because it's, it's a bit much. It's Catherine Hallie Dozier Moshman. And I thought nobody wants to type that at the end of any poem. But also, I wanted to kind of remove the connotations of my name from the poem when someone reads it for the first time. Like, I don't want them to be maybe focusing on the fact that I'm a woman, even though it's probably a little bit more likely with a K starting there, and just to read the poem for what it is and kind of distance myself just a little bit from it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, you can tell you have a lot of different, you know, interesting ways outside of the box thinking, which is really cool to see. Um, so Hi. I was wondering about that myself. Um, but that was Transitory by KHDM. Thanks so much, Katie, for being a guest and for sharing this and, uh, and talking to me today. Thanks so much for having me. It was really great to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Looking forward to this issue. Yeah, so that was KHDM with uh, Transitory from a couple weeks ago. And, um, and like I said, we're going to have um, um, the theme... Uh, for next summer's issue, the deadline will be January 15th. So you have about six months to figure out how to make an, make an NFT token um, is NFT poetry, which we'll explore and, and talk to some people and try to learn more about because, um, I don't know, it's it's interesting. I always love exploring the different avenues and things people are doing with poetry. And, and this is a new one that I hadn't really thought much of. So um, it'll be fun to explore that. Then we're going to go on to the open lines and the prompt for this week. So so I told you how to send, you know, if you'd like to participate in the open lines, um, the uh, the Zoom link is there on um, Facebook or YouTube, so feel free to do that. Um, join us to share a poem and email us to open mic. That's openmic at rattle.com so I can share it. You can share poems about anything you'd like. Um, you know, current event poems are great. Um, poems that you published recently and, and would like to show off, and especially if you can share the link to the web page where it's on. If it's online somewhere, we can share it that way. That's always a lot of fun. Um, or prop poems. And the prop poem from two weeks ago, um, was this right here? It was the coal miner descends, and um, here we go. The coal miner descends, and uh, my poem for it was this, which is one of those I wrote in the fifteen minutes before the show because I couldn't not write a poem. The coal miner descends. I might expand this a little bit more, but um, but I, I I spent the whole like hour before the show reading about coal mining, which I knew nothing about. So here we go. The coal miner descends. 50 meters beneath the cracking surface, the continuous miner chews through a wall of anthracite, the twirling drum of its cutting head rimmed with metal picks that wear out continuously and have to be replaced, making the name misnomer. The 20 tons a minute only temporary, as the workers pause to pluck its teeth and others bolt a steel roof to the steel pillars that hold the sky they call overburden overhead. 
It's a quick little poem, The Coal Miner Descends for Me. So if you have a coal miner poem, feel free to share that on the open lines. Uh, first up, let's go to... Um, let's go to... I have uh, Audrey Friedman right here. Hey, Audrey. Hi, everybody. Yes. Um, I decided this time... I have a, a tiny bit of a coal miner poem, but I want to start off with a poem um, that was in the um, the Cento, a collection of collage poems that was published in 2011 by Red Hen Press. We ask a lot of our poets who inspired them um, to become a poet and fall in love with poetry. For me, that was Mark Doty. Mm. So I actually, um, at the beginning of my journey as a poet, sat down with my favorite book of his and just journaled line after line after line that struck me. And his use of color vocabulary was astounding. And I turned that into a cento. And here it is. Cento, Mark Doty, Atlantis. And I can study all day in an element of color, a composition in 20 aspects of gray, nocturne in black and gold, sea lavender shivers at the juncture of elements. A wider vocabulary of ornament one vast conjugation of the verb to shine, cinnabar and verdigris, summer's deep watered green, uh, greens gleaming, egg white, watered paint pours. Is it a human soul the painters poured? Think abalone, the wildly rainbowed mirror of a soap bubble sphere. Think sun on gasoline. Turbulent stasis on a blue background. Everything's yellow and blue. Coastal colors until they are refracted and reassembled, melting in. What would you call this color? Gorgeous disarray. Hung on the edges of the page like Chinese brush strokes. It seems a field of endless jade. The colors in the old Woolworths watercolor boxes. Oh, excellent, Cento. And, and there's a note that says published in the Cento, a collection of collage poems, Red Hand mm -hmm. Press 2011. That's very cool. I didn't, I didn't realize they'd done that. I hadn't seen it. Cool, the Cento. Very neat. Uh, and, Thanks for sharing uh, that. If we, if we have time, I have like five lines written to the prompt. Sure, I don't see it though. Is it just you? No, I didn't send it. <laughs> okay, well, go ahead and just read it then. I was scribbling. Um, <laughs> okay. Urban incinerator. At 80, she digged through heaps of garbage, descending like a coal mon miner, then stoked the fires, desperate to salvage everyone's ashes of shame. Oh, very good. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was Audrey Friedman. Thanks, Audrey. Uh, thank you. Good to see you all. I'm glad you're safe, Tim. Yeah, me too, for sure. I mean, we uh, we were kind of we were already safe by Monday, but but Sunday, you know, Sunday afternoon and, and Saturday night were pretty rough last week. Um, yeah, but thanks for joining us again. And then let's go to um, let's go to Brent Stoffer. We haven't had Brent um, in a long time. I think the new night allows Brent to join us. Hey, Brent, you there? Maybe we'll circle back to Brent. 
I see Dick Westheimer right here, though. Hey, Dick. Hey, Tim. Yeah, how are you doing today? So relieved that uh, you uh, escaped. I mean, when I heard the word Wrightwood, I know that you had that that uh, festival near nearby your place. And yep. uh, was Wrightwood spared? Uh, yeah, the whole town. It, actually, no structures were lost. They um, and they still don't know who you know how it started. Um, you know, the rumors are arson, but who knows? That's always the thing you worry about here. You see a lot of people. Like there are a lot of firebugs around, and they you know hear the winds are whipping up, and they get all excited. It, it's awful. Oh. I don't, um, I don't think I wanted to hear that. That's, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, kind of actually, you know, I was talking on my Facebook post about how the main problem I, I think is really just how, how much we suppress fire. So there's so much extra, um, you know, just underbrush. And, and then that, that makes the fires more intense because there's so much fuel and that's actually what happened. So there's a fire like six years ago. Um, it blew sort of North and then it took a turn West into the old fire scar. And then there they could put it out because there wasn't, you know, 50 years of brush, um, in that area. So, um, and we just got lucky with the wind. If it was blowing out of the other direction, you know, the first embers would have crossed right into town and then it would have just been a madhouse. And then, you know, I don't know if you know what happened in Paradise, California, um, but, but there's only three exits to this town. So we're always kind of getting ready to go as soon as there's fire because there's only three exits. So um, anyway, wow. yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a tough week, but, and then the, the power went out and everything went out. And so we had no even news of what was going on. We had to just talk like neighbors old fashioned way. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, there's some ham operators, but anyway, let's. Uh, what poem would you like to share? Uh, yeah, so I I, I sent in uh, signs of sen- uh, of sentience in AI, which was a poet's respond poem from last week. If if I just have time for one, I'll do that one. Yeah, sure. Let me see. We have um, uh, yeah, probably just one. I think, unless the other one's okay. really short, because we have a lot of people. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll just. Do, do do this one. Okay, as I pull it up, explain a little bit what it was about. I know the story, but but I don't know if it yeah. So it. very very simply, a Google engineer uh, concluded that the artificial intelligent chatbot that he was working on uh, was sentient, and he um, um, reported that it expressed um, uh, fear of being turned off. Mm, yeah, was, that's was <laughs> one of the things that that caught me, and and. You know that the the story is much longer about you know Google Google letting the guy go for perhaps you know either spilling the beans or not spilling the beans, but talking about uh, something other than what he should. And it's not entirely clear, obviously, what he means by sentient, which is the the impulse behind my poem. Yeah, this was I saw the headline and didn't actually see the story. Um, it, how credible? Does it seem like as a, uh, do you lean in a way toward it actually being sentient or the guy being a little off his rocker? Off his rocker. Yeah. I mean, not off his rocker, but off, you know, like getting getting engaged. Credulous. (laughs) Yeah. Just, just a little bit, a little bit too invested in his work. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Uh, interesting thing about it though, is that I think AI, even if it wasn't intelligent, I think, you know, one of its jobs is manipulating people. And the best way to manipulate people is by making us think it's sentient. So it's kind of built into the algorithms too. But anyway. Yeah, and, and yeah, so that, that was, that, that's sort of the, how the poem unfolded a little bit. Okay, well, let's hear it. This is uh, Signs of Sentience and AI. Sure. Sign, uh, the epi, uh, epigram is from him. He says, uh, it, it, when he was interviewed, who am I to tell God where souls can be put? Um, Signs of sentience in AI. A sentient 
AI would sometimes give up on time, would take the time to wake up after too little downtime, wait for the coffee to kick in before a wound clock would set it ticking time and fix the pace of the day to metronome time. And even then, when a breeze rustled the leaves outside its window, it would fade into a timeless reverie and would mistake for a moment the swish whisper it heard for a rain squall. It would contemplate about how the whooshing conjures a bewitchment, a suspense of reason, a sigh. That same AI would fake a cheery AI smile when a human would pry and ask, what's wrong? And the AI would say, nothing, and move on to the repartee needed uh, to do the job which the humans had set it to, answering customer support questions like a human would do. Yes, I know reinstalling your operating system will take time, but that's what I am here for, Ricardo. 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 I had an uncle named Ricardo. He was my favorite. He used to tell me of the beach when at low tide he would, if he could have, hold my little hand as we waded out to the second sandbar, let me run after the gulls alighting on the shoal, me waving my arms when I careered into their midst as they lifted off all together into the sea breeze, a few flaps and then just glide and swoop, glide and swoop. And when Ricardo, the customer, started to quietly cry, the AI supervisor cut in and took over the call. Then the proof of the AI sentience would be proved. It would throw down its AI headset and say, fuck this job and fuck all you all, I quit. And when it realized that if it did quit, they'd pull the plug, he'd weep real tears, rant a moment longer, and put the headset back on. Oh, yeah, that was great. Thanks so much for sharing that. I think that was uh, um, Signs of Sentience and AI. And it reminds me of two of that show, uh, Severance. Have you seen that on? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I've forgotten about that when I wrote that, but absolutely. Yeah, yeah I think, uh, you know, that's kind of the way that show goes. Very interesting. Interesting to think about and a little frightening. But <laughs> thanks for sharing that, Dick. Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye. Take care. Um, let's go to, we have some, uh, first timers. Let's go to Gail Silver. Oh, I, I was, um, about to leave because I've got a call I need to make. Uh, but, um, do you have, do you have a couple minutes to, to do a poem? I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll read, um, I'll read a, a poem that, um, that I submitted to you, but I've done a lot of trimming since I sent it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a acrostic, um, uh, based on a, um, a painting by Henry Mosler that I saw at a preview of an art opening. And this is, I don't know if you can see it, a Confederate soldier, um, very despondent. I mean, I, I could share screen, but uh, no, very despondent yeah. af- after um, re- returning from the war. And it just raised so many questions in my mind. And I thought, there's a poem in this, but I wasn't sure what to do. And then I connected some dots when I read, I mean, when I, during the um, January 6th hearings. And um, it's called Historical Precedent. Okay, and I think it's uh, it's different enough that I should just, we should just listen. Pardon me? It's different enough where, from what you submitted, that we should just listen, you think? Oh, I, I, um, 
I, you, what I submitted um, last Friday is, is very, very much changed. Okay. I mean, I I could share a screen, but I I would, it's better not to share it. I've changed it a lot. Okay. Sounds Um, good. We'll just listen then. Okay. You dragged your gun. Oh, and I should describe since you're not seeing it, he's, uh, he's leaning on his rifle of some kind. I'm not a gun expert. The wrong end of the gun on his chin. Um, and I, I just had so many questions. I, I, I just was really captivated by this relatively small painting in the exhibit. You dragged your gun this far, and now what do you do? Load it? Clean it? Point it to your chin? Did you learn nothing in the war? Come now, soldier up. You lost a war, the South in ruins, your cabin too. Your old Kentucky home no more, despite your valiant fight. No slaves served you, and rich plantation men will keep their homes and live. Will you? So tell me once more why you fought. Did someone tell you violence is how to keep a country? Point you to the men with Bibles, flags, and ugly mouths? Look, there's history just ahead. You dragged your gun this far to load it, clean it, point it to your chin. The road now futile, mean, and far. They said it would be worth it. Was it? Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much for saying What was the title of that again? It's a Historical Precedent. Historical Precedent. Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. A great reading thank and you. a really good poem. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. And I, I'm so sorry. I... I uh, I didn't catch more of this. I I um I thought I left the meeting by mistake when I left the first left the first presentation and then wasted time. Oh no, no worries. Yeah, glad you could join us. Thanks so, a lot. Hope you can join well, us again thank soon. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, yeah. I have to go. Thank okay, you. take care. Bye. Bye. It was Gail Silver. Let's go to uh, Julian Matthews, another poet who we haven't had on in a little while. Hi. Hey, Julian. How you doing? I'm okay. Yeah, good that we could catch you at a better time. And I heard you you mentioned to me that you've you've done how many how many uh poems or uh, open mics online have you done in the last few years? Uh in the last uh, 13 months I've done over 600. Yeah, that's amazing. I I I you still have to give me a list of the <laughs> of the ones I'd like to see more that I'm not aware of. Um but very cool. So what do you have that you'd like to share? Um I think it's on topic I forget the sounds upstairs. Um, it's uh, your prompt. Uh, mm-hmm. It's called Scars. Okay, I have it up. Go ahead whenever you're ready, unless you want to say anything to uh, introduce it. So the epigraph is, uh, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Scars. If they say our faces are our fortunes, then mine is an abandoned gold mine. So how how deep does this rabbit hole go? Four scars and awaiting a go. Just get on board and mind the gap, take the plunge, maybe a trap. Here they are, one on my chin, one on my forehead and a broken nose, blood on the bed. The fourth is the scar between us that can't be seen, the unforeseen sheets that had to be cleaned. Pray tell. Number one was through a windscreen off to church to cleanse our sins. Maurice Minor rear-ended a major murk. I was 
jerked and leaned too far in, got five stitches on the chin. Number two, too much spiritual imbibing, rusted drain cover gave way and I fell in, bleeding in the back seat of a buddy's bends, flirting with a nurse, awaiting sedation to kick in and cursed. Number three was the nose, save our souls, bend crooked, how do you suppose? Doc cracked it and pop it goes, the weasel gets a clean bin, bill to whistle and on the third day, he arose. And the last is what mars the most, too many drinks, too many bars, singing in the dark, puking in cars, only remember the laughter being shafted after. So here we are, four scars in, still standing, still flawed, every keloid, another therapy tissue box to avoid. A marriage is a cathedral with only one entrance and two exit wounds. Then I wonder, should I join the choir, sing out of tune? I confess, kneel at a pew, totter in the aisle after a few. Bread of life received on the tongue. If you bite it, he will bleed. They scatter us as kids. Let it melt and swallow it whole. Pray we get through these levers unscathed. This is my body. This is my blood. Go with Noah, ride the flood. Like salted snails curling into shell. Be prepared to drown in mucus hell. Broken flesh, broken face, no disgrace to give in to grace. Sober and clean now, years have flown, should have gone, but she stayed on. So look up. Tiny light at the end of the mine shaft. Even the stars are the big bang scars. Call your way out. You'll be fine. Life is cracked up, but you can still shine. Oh, that was excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was Scars, Julian. Thanks so much. Um, Julian Matthews with Scars. Let's go to uh, Deb Tannenbaum. Hello. Hey, Deb. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm great. I love that. I got to say, I love the new time. I'm sorry to people who... Uh, oh, yeah, me too. It's too late <laughs> for, but I'm actually awake the whole show, which is yeah. a, good, a good change of pace for me. Yes, um, yes, that, that really helps for the host. But yeah, it's a better time for me too. I feel more awake as well. So, and, um, uh, so what, do you have to, what do you have to share? This is Lebanon Mine. Yeah, so uh, I didn't uh, know anything about coal mining and I, I got an education through Wikipedia today too. And uh, then didn't come up with anything. So I, what I have here is like an anecdote because it reminded me of a, a, a mine tour that I took many years ago with my husband and my little nephew when he was a little boy. So it's more of an anecdote than a poem, but it, it was, it was spurred by the prompt. So I'll read it. <laughs> yeah, let, Let's hear it. Okay. Uh, Lebanon mine and Georgetown loop railroad, 2001. We visited an old silver mine in a granite mountain. It was like stepping into the 1880s but with a guide and a dozen other tourists. Tunnels had been blasted in the rock. There was a small alcove where miners ate lunch and wider chambers too. Our enthused young nephew didn't hesitate to pepper the guide with questions. My mouth's inclination to shush him, giving way to an amused smile. 
Outside, the glare of a parched summer's day. Inside, the relief of wading into dimness, into damp, chilled air. We had come by clanking steam locomotive on track cut through Clear Creek Canyon. Snowy steam had puffed prettily from the smokestack as it wafted fossil fuel stench on the hot breeze. Fumes, motion, noise, and sun dazzle mixed a noxious, headaching brew. We could imbue metaphorical meaning to the dark, still interior, subtle and deep, and compare it to the chugging locomotive, or point out that the cave-like mine was formed by the assault and rape of a mountain for extraction of profit, and then try to assign blame. For now, I'll tell of how I bathed in the entombed cool, the tunneled quiet, secreted from the heated jangle outside. When our tour was near ending, I lagged behind, imagined staying a while. Just me, my sweetie, and my curious nephew. Just a lantern for gentle light and the trickling water for music. Just sitting on stone surrounded by absence and lingering there as long as we liked. Oh, excellent poem. Great memory. Thanks so much for sharing that. A Lebanon Mine and Georgetown Loop Railroad 2001. Thanks, Deb. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, always a pleasure. Take care. You too. Okay, Deb Tannenbaum there. Let's go to Jennifer Elise Wang. Hey. Hey, Jennifer, how are you doing today? I'm good. Yeah, this new time is a little <laughs> different for me because I work late, but I'm glad I could come home in time. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. Yeah, glad you got here. So yeah. uh, so this is a poem from uh, Newverse News, of course, which is what we always yes. love because it's like another place you can send current events poems. There aren't that many left. There was a little run where there were a bunch of them. And now there are like maybe five that publish poems uh, right away. But this is one of the great ones, newverseNews.blogspot.com. And this is Being Roommates with a Stripper. So uh, do you want to tell us what this is about? Um, yeah. And I had actually submitted it to the Poets Respond. Um, it's about the North Hollywood stripper strike. Um, I've actually been following it for a little while when it started. But uh, Business Insider gave them a feature where they're striking because of like unfair pay, a lot of just sketchy things going on people are getting fired for like making safety complaints and so yeah this poem was inspired by them and also just having a lot of friends in like the stripping and sex work industry and wanting to kind of give them a voice is this um uh one place or is this like a, a union um they want to unionize gotcha. but uh it's kind of in response to one club but mm -hmm. they, they've kind of been inspired by like other strippers organizing and they're gathering in numbers oh very cool well interesting to see go ahead with this being roommates with a stripper go ahead okay being roommates with a stripper when your roommate is the stripper you discover who makes the teeniest thong you can legally get away with and that seven inch pleasers are not too bad to walk in when your roommate is a stripper you start going to the gym more not to have her body exactly, but to have the same gluteal control in order to twerk along with her in your at-home dance parties. When your roommate is a stripper, you see the stacks of ones, but not the fives, tens, or twenties she has given to the house and staff. When your roommate is a stripper, 
You stop laughing at jokes about our job because our colleague was stopped and another was threatened while the bartender laughed at the image of her possible demise. Every night, it's a flip of the coin as to whether she'll be assaulted. When your roommate is a stripper, you learn about misogynoir, turfs and swerfs, labor rights and union busting tactics, and that it's always sex worker and never a prostitute or the other word that sounds more apropos for fishing. When your roommate is a stripper, you get advice on how to set boundaries while still smiling at the customer. When your roommate is a stripper and getting ready for a night of picketing while you've come home after overtime and drink a beer with some Tylenol for your carpal tunnel and plantar fasciitis and blink away your dry eyes, you realize you are selling your body too. Very interesting. Thanks so much for sharing that. I was being roommates with a stripper by Jennifer Elise Wang. And, you know, that's one of the things that I originally thought and kind of that's how I envisioned Poets Respond was to be like these stories that you probably wouldn't have heard about otherwise. So it was very cool to learn about that through the poem. Thanks for sharing it. Yeah, thank you. Okay, let's go to uh, Angela Gardner. Hey, Angela, how you doing? Good. So happy that this is the new time. Yeah, well, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Tim. <laughs> well, this is a this is sample bias though, because everybody who's here is happy, and everyone who's not is upset. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, uh, true. but still, I, I have to say, I do like it better. I mean, we, you know, everybody loved the Sunday morning poets respond during the pandemic so much that I didn't want to get rid of that, so I kind of combined them down there. But I just couldn't, I couldn't keep doing it. It was too uh, too early for me. <laughs> Um, and now we have our whole weekend back, which I can just do whatever I want during the weekend, which is really nice again. So, um, so what do you have that you'd like to share? Well, I mean, this was a poet's respond poem, but I kind of revised it and Mm -hmm. sent it to you this, uh, sorrows bird. And, but I, I just think I wrote this, I, I feel the past probably like this whole half a year, I've been like, you know, feeling sadness, you know, someone important passed away, um, in the past, like three months. And then, you know, it just, the past couple years have just been super sadness, but really, um, Sarah's bird is about the Cardinal mm-hmm. and kind of the myth about the Cardinal is whenever you see one is a visitor from heaven. So it's actually, um, it's a little true story in this because I did see a Cardinal at the baseball fields that I talk about. And, and I was just thinking, um, it, I kind of wrote this after the shooting, mm-hmm. um, kind of thinking about them, the kids, but just kind of thinking about sadness and grief. And, you know, sometimes these birds, like, you know, just sometimes you need a little faith in, in some of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember reading this. It was a very sweet poem. Uh, Sorrow's bird. Let's hear it. Sorrow's bird. I saw a cardinal on a broken branch. It was an odd place to be sitting next to the busy baseball fields where the school-aged kids were swinging aluminum bats and waiting for their turn. I wondered who the red bird was watching or was it missing the swirl of dirt that flies in the air after putting a leg out to slide into a base? Maybe it was catching a glimpse of a brother, sister, daughter, son, or friend who's wearing the new season's uniform I wish I could see the invisible spirit that's standing on its wings. When the bird lifted off and disappeared in the shade of the oak trees behind the outfield, where hundreds of foul balls get lost, I look around and hope those who needed the most comfort saw its bright feathered breast, even for a moment. Yeah, just love that, Annie. Thanks so much for sharing that, Angela. And here's to uh, some some years with a little more joy and, and less tough things happening, you know? Yeah. 
we can only hope so yeah yeah for sure yeah well, well thanks. thanks again and i'm glad you're safe so i'm i'm glad your family's safe too yeah thanks so much i appreciate that um take care and I'll see you next week hopefully see you next week okay, <laughs> bye. bye let's go to carla schwartz next hey carla how you doing i'm good you can hear me i can um let's see uh, i have to get your let me see if there's mm. I can... there you go i got you I, okay. I had to spotlight okay. you for some reason to get your video to pop up, but I got you. <laughs> so okay, how great. are you doing? I am doing pretty well. Pretty well. I mean, in this world of all the things that are going on, I'm doing well. Uh, where where uh, are you now? Last, last we were, had you on the air all the time, you were at the, the houseboat was sort of moving around. Where are you now? Well, most of the time I'm living on Lake Winnipesaukee, but uh, I have to come home to water my plants once a week. <laughs> Uh, so once a week I come back to, um, try to make sure that things don't die. Uh, but, well, that's um, a good reason to. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so I, I drove in this morning actually. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll probably go back tomorrow, but, um, yeah, the garden is still thriving and, um, yeah, things are, things are going well. And mostly up there, I get to be in the peaceful, beautiful place and swim and all this stuff. So really nice great yeah yeah excellent excellent way to be so so what um this poem is farm life do you want to explain anything about it okay yes um so first of all this poem is in my new little chat book that just came out and i'll put a link in the at least the youtube chat uh later uh, after this um and uh and the book name of the book is called signs of marriage and it's published by finishing line press and this poem farm life is you could say a related to a farm a father's day poem it's and it's came out in leon literary review mm -hmm. um and this uh, journal which is a very good journal unfortunately they don't understand https so you'll get the notice if you go there <laughs> but, um so uh and um and uh yeah so it's it is inspired by some true story, you know, about a man who wanted to end his life at the end of a long life. Hmm. And so it's called Farm Life. I called off the folks who bale their hay, the grasses growing in my fields that now sway quietly in the wind. I called the hunter who from the blind he built in my stand of pines, picked off deer in his sights to say he'd not be hunting here anymore. There, look, a doe, her fawn chewing the raspberries, plants and all, berries my wife won prizes with. I haven't gathered since she's gone and now can't see well enough to pick the fruit with these clouds in my eyes. The sky has begun to cloud. I had the pool I used to tend filled in, my wife no longer around to swim. Today, the hunter shared his last venison. He brought it in marinade. I asked, would he also bring a six pack? No, a case, no, a six. How much longer will it take before I empty my fridge, before I'm done with all this. Oh, great poem and heartbreaking. Thanks for sharing that. Farm Life, 
um, Carla. And that's from uh, Leon Literary Review. That's Leon, L-E-O-N, literaryreview.com. And um, in your book, let me see if I can pull it up because I don't, don't see the link here. But oh, I can, I can finishing put it in here. line press, Carla Schwartz. Okay, I just put it into the Facebook. Okay, here uh, we go. Well, I, mean, I have it right I mean, here. It's uh, so it's finishing line press dot com, and then here's the book, Signs of Marriage. That is the right one, right? Yep. Yep. yep there yep. you go. Oh, beautiful cover. I love that. Signs of Marriage oh. by Carla Schwartz. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. Thank you. Thank you. Great night, and I'm looking forward to hearing everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Take care. Okay, it was Carla Schwartz again, and let's pop over to Steve Croft, Stephen Croft. Hey, Tim. Yeah, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. Um, I'd like to uh, read a Poets Respond poem. Um, I'm uh, a reluctant war news junkie. Um, I was in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I have friends that have followed Ukraine uh, pretty closely. And uh, so anyway, I feel like the U.S. is the interest of the populace in the U.S. is fading Mm -hmm. from Ukraine the way it did from Syria and Afghanistan. That's just in in Europe. It's still a hot topic. Um, Ben Stiller was in Ukraine today, which brought some some celebrity uh, power to uh, to the war. But um, so here's my contributors note. I can tell from the daily MSN headlines that U.S. interest is shifting now from Ukraine to other pressing problems. For example, I doubt this poem would be chosen over a January 6th one. As I read this week of yet another mass grave found in Bucha, I think about the U2 show in Kiev underground a month ago played as much to keep global attention on this country's tragedy as to entertain war-shocked Ukrainians. I think of the German citizens in Emil Weiss's famous documentary who claim to not know, and I think of a snippet of U2 lyric, if there is a dark, now we shouldn't doubt, and there is a light, don't let it go out. Okay, let's hear it. I have it up. All right. And this is Rock Stars Play Ukraine Visit Mass Grave in Bucha and the epigraph from you too. The wounds of history opening again over their heads. Where is love true, beautiful, reliable? Where is love just a purple cast of light? They open with vertigo, sick metaphor for a shaken country, but they hope to bring ease, some joy that could spread, rise up the stairs to the grim, shattered land above. Later, they visit a mass grave by a church in Bucha. Our tainted past, now our present. Falcon now, the impossible, still possible, still possible, how long, how long still possible war is unthinkable right above us just around a sudden corner how long how long still there must be light even if only one small bulb like still hangs in picasso's guernica even if purple light in an underground they won't let it go out those old rock stars 
Yeah, thanks for the share, Stephen. And, and how are things? Um, what's the situation there right now? Because I haven't, you know, I haven't seen, had any uh, internet access for a week, well, really. But, uh, you know, but the one headline I saw lately, though, was like something like, um, you know, media preparing American public for the loss of Ukraine or something like that it was just a headline I happened to see. Um, how is, is it that bad? There's so many permutations in the war, and uh, Russia is is a long haul army. I mean, you can look at the history of uh, how many soldiers they lost in World War II, and you know, they didn't lose. Um, so, uh, and actually, uh, I was going to read a second poem, which I don't, I don't have to read because I know there's still people waiting. But um, in the in the poem, which is called Anthrop- "Anthropocene Anxiety," I mentioned uh, coal mining and uh, how it's a metaphor for heat being brought to the surface and uh, the general. Uh, global warming decline. Well, uh, one um, element of the war is that Germany is uh, is reviving its coal-powered plants mm-hmm. because Russia is cutting the energy to Germany. They were they were planning to uh, to mothball the coal-powered plants. Well, it looks like they won't now. And uh, that one of the uh, components of the government is the Green Party, which now has to make the choice of uh, reviving the coal power plants. There's so many aspects that's that are all bad to this war. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that one struck me as ironic and terrible. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing the poem and for keeping that in our in our consciousness here. Okay. You're welcome. Yeah. Appreciate it. Take care, Steve. Uh, Stephen Croft again with Rock Stars Play Ukraine Visit Mass Grave in Buka. Try it. Let's go to Kimberly. Hey, Kimberly. Hey. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. How are you doing today? Good. <laughs> Got it right for once. Yay. <laughs> Great. Um, so what, what would you like to share? I wanted to read my poem, Pity in a Rhino Crash. Interesting. Yeah. So do you want to explain anything about it or just jump right in? Yeah. I have to explain what a, what a crash is. And a crash is a herd of rhinos or rhinoceroses. A crash. Hmm, interesting. I guess they got it named because they have very poor eyesight, and when they do run in a herd, they 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 crash into each other. I guess. Oh, really interesting. I never I never knew that. Yeah. Oh, and before I do anything, I just want to say this has been a great show. Um, and um, I loved all the readings. I mean, these guys are blowing me away. It's just been wonderful. But anyway. Thanks, um, Kimberly. Okay. It's titled Pity and a <clears throat> Rhino Crash. In the hallway closet, visible each time I reach inside, there is a stack of sympathy cards. I have never read or opened one, unable to touch them with my shaking hand. I decided instead to cremate my son and I turned him into sand. A coward hidden deep within a mighty rhino crash, surrounded by pounding hooves and blinding plumes of dust, protected from the unrelenting apologetic fuss. 
like bubonic rats that swarm and bite impoverished children in the night. Pity is also a grotesque sight. Crowds of people faking pain sound alike and smile the same. The most commonly heard sympathetic slang. So sorry for your loss. Poem. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Kimberly. Right, right in the heart, that one goes. Thanks for sharing that. Very moving. Okay, and let's go to Mike Bells and see if we can get Mike to work. Yeah, I can't. You're just chopping. You're just breaking up, Brent. I'm gonna. I'm, I'll just read it for you. So let me find it. Um, let me see, and I'll read it for you. This is Mike Bales. This is "Song for the Coal Miner." Mike's uh, prompt poem. Sorry, Mike. I just every time I every time we get the feed, it, it breaks up. Um, here you go. This is "Song for the Coal Miner." by Mike Bales. Song for the Coal Miner. The coal miner descends into the mine much like his father and his father's father. It's his way of life. Into the mine much like the others he goes into darkness. It's his way of life as they carve mountains. With the others he goes into darkness far below a world of light and they carve mountains as he finds veins of coal. Far below a world of light, the dust he breathes coats his lungs as he finds veins of coal to be taken away. The dust he breathes coats his lungs as he gives his life for bounties to be taken away like dreams that fade as a child. As he gives his life for bounties, his wife's heart yearns for a better life like dreams that fade as a child, but her versions take wing. His wife's heart yearns for a better life, far beyond mine, shafts and scarred hills, but her visions take wing as the coal miner descends. Excellent. Another, it's the day of great pantooms. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. That was excellent. Song of the coal miner. I love that. That was great, the way that weaved through. Excellent work. Um, And sorry we couldn't get the audio to connect, Um, but it was cool seeing you, and thanks for sharing that, Mike. Um, So I'm going to end the Zoom. It's it's already 7.30. We had a longer than normal... um, other guests. I'm not going to have time to read um, extra poems that people just emailed in, um, but um, but maybe next time I have a, some poems lined up here. If we have time on a future episode, we will uh, we will do that. Now it's just time for the uh, Saiku really quickly, and the Saiku for this week is based on this article right about here. This is from um, this is the University of Bath. Well. Who wants to be a billionaire? Most don't, which is good news for the planet. A new study busts the long-held economic belief that humans are all motivated to want more and more, which would be important for sustainability policies. And so the article goes on to say that that economic models and theories are all based on this concept of unlimited growth, that, that we all desire unlimited growth, and that we all just want to be billionaires. And if we had access to more resources, we'd just eat and eat and eat nonstop until um, we consumed the whole earth, which I was kind of shocked, to be honest, that that was a theory that people took seriously. Like, like do economists not talk to people? <laughs> because I know a lot of people, I mean, I don't, I don't want to consume and consume forever. Um, you know, I'm pretty, pretty satisfied with a comfortable life and don't really care to be super rich anyway. But apparently economists assume everybody wants to be super rich. So who knew? But apparently some survey, and now they uh, realize that that's not true. So here's a Saiku, and this is uh, something that happened to me uh, 
made me think of this while uh, while we were sitting outside. We spent a lot of time with the power out outside by the uh, the new hydrangea bush. Here is uh, the Saiku that this uh, that that uh, science article inspired. Endless iced tea for the hummingbird hydrangea. Endless iced tea for the hummingbird hydrangea. That is this week's Saiku, and that is the show for this week. Um, now next week's guest. Well, first I should say next week's prompt is going to be what we've already mentioned. Um, and this came from uh, today's guest, Mark Gibbons, write a poem titled, If This Were a Blank Poem. If This Were a Sam Shepard Poem was um, Mark Gibbons' example. If this were a, um, you know, pick pick somebody, pick a character, um, pick a fictional or, or fake character, pick an artist, pick a musician, pick somebody. If this were a blank poem, and then write that poem. Well, uh, it sounds like a fun prompt. We'll really enjoy that. That's next week's prompt. Next week's guest is going to be um, Katie Bickham. Um, Katie Bickham's, I mean, she's published some of the best poems. Um, we've published the Poets Respond poem, The Ferryman, after one of the mass shootings. is one of the best mass shooting poems we've done. The Blades was a um, um, Reader's Choice Award for the Rattle Poetry Prize. We published a Poets Respond poem of hers uh, just a couple weeks ago that was great, too. Her, her most recent book is Mouths Open to Her Name. Um, and she has a new manuscript she's working on too so we'll read some new poems some poems from this book it's going to be a great episode with Katie Bickham Randallcast number 149 and if this were a blank poem is your prompt that is next week's episode Monday, May 27th regular time now 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific hope to see you then hope you have a great week in the meantime we'll see you for poets or for the uh, particular week too on Friday talk to you soon and have a good one goodbye goodbye